Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover, and I'm here with my friend and colleague, Julie Alexander. And Julie is um, an extraordinary person and person many talents. And one of those is she bred some fantastic dogs. And I know very well because I own two of them and I knew 13 of them. And um, one of my Dobermans from Julie and Mark Alexander lived to be just short of his 13th birthday. So that's phenomenal. In addition, Julie is one of the most knowledgeable people about uh, genetics, biochemistry, or at least certain aspects of biochemistry and endocrinology. So we're just going to play tonight. We have things that we've been wanting to talk about. What's on your mind, Julie? And lately on several discussion groups, uh, things have come up about stress control for people. And with a lot of some of the things that I run into where therapists are recommending various types of exposure therapy to people, it's very crude compared to what people are doing with animals. Uh, the um, instead of baking it, being able to take it and put it into more discrete steps, break it down into different factors. It could be things like uh, suggesting uh, my roommate has combat PTSD and at times going into noisy, crowded environments is difficult. But instead of having him try to break it down into going to the door of a store, stopping and backing off, it's going to the store and try and stay there for five minutes. Mm. And then go in there wow. and try and stay and, there and, a little bit longer yeah, and try to tough minutes. it out. Yeah. To try to tough it out rather than go in and go out. Go in and, and, and go out. Go in and you walk one aisle and go back out. There's and a lot. To to There's to a bring lot it back down the baseline. Yeah. So it's very crude. And then they'll get into other things like trying to use flooding. Just shove somebody in there and let them pretty much stay there until they're wiped, uh, you know, just exhausted and sort of throw them in and see if they'll sink or swim. Mm. So it seems like it's very crude compared to things that, um, you know, even more basic things with acclimating animals to it, uh, taking horses, um, young horses, putting them in a pasture and tying up plastic bags that are, you know, bounding about and letting them figure it out. It seems like it's very crude and it's unnecessary, difficult. Or another thing that's been coming up um, has been on um, uh, a discussion group for going to the gym. New people coming into the gym and saying, I'm really nervous about going to the gym. I feel like everybody's staring at me or I'm gonna feel weird just going in, getting myself motivated. I can't get myself through the door. So work up a few things with, you know, past it, 
you know, uh, turn around and go away from, from it. Um, walk in the door and turn around and come back out and praise yourself, pat yourself on the back. I walk through the door to yeah. build it up into ways where it's not just always harder. You're not just going to try to drag yourself in there. Yeah. Uh, so this has come up with uh, how do we manage to take the techniques, the, the methods that are better with animals and be able to spread it out so that people can figure out how to use it by themselves more or with the aid of another person. Yeah. Gosh. There, uh, there are so many things there. Uh, the first thing that jumps to mind is to tell somebody five minutes is to assume that five minutes in a store is going to be roughly equal each time. Yes. How do you it just depends how many people are there, how tired is the person, you know, <clears throat> uh, was there traffic on the way there, that kind of thing. And it doesn't do the work that can be done in a more protected environment first. Yes. So Walmart recent Walmart recently back to school for a couple of hours on Saturday mornings. They were having low sensory input. The lights were turned down. They had all of the video was like on pause. Uh -huh. The music was turned off. So for people who were overloaded, but also people who had kids that would overload, yeah, could have a couple hours where they could take it in and it wouldn't be as stressful. Yeah. Excuse me one second. Dave, would you turn on the overhead light here? Wow, thank you. Great person. So even even Walmart could realize that it could be sensory overload for some people and some kids and make it easier. So going into Walmart got, for five minutes then. They've got all that um, video, you know, yes. there's uh, security video, which could be really a great thing to look at to understand this issue. I mean, mm -hmm. you're, you're going to see how people respond in various situations. Of course, Walmart is kind of famous for... Uh, how people present there. But you know what? Walmart has shown surprising sensitivity to a couple of things lately. This is one. But also, I'm trying to think of where it was. I'm not sure if it was Katrina or another storm, but they did such a phenomenal job when they saw that, um, you know, things were an emergency, they contacted all the first responders, loaded them up with all the supplies and everything that they could. Mm -hmm. uh, and Walmart told their um, supervisors that they were going to have to make decisions beyond their normal capacity and to most of all, do the right thing. And they were so instrumental in supporting the community um, through this horrendous crisis. When the government and FEMA and so on couldn't get it together, Walmart was feeding people and giving them water 
and supplying the first responders. It was really an inspirational story. Um, they deserve some credit for the mm -hmm. fact that they are really working at being more sensitive and more part of the community. Give them credit when it's due. Yeah. Okay, so I think it's great that you know, you know our protocol, you're proficient in SATs, and you're also an outstanding dog trainer. And a really good dog trainer has to, at some level, master the fact that you must advance in little steps. Mm -hmm. And I often say we want to build a pyramid, a really broad base, because as the dog goes up the levels of the pyramid, if he loses his footing, he'll roll down a bit, but he can still catch himself and get back up and keep going. But if you make an obelisk, you know, a spire, and mm -hmm. you just, you don't have a broad foundation, you spend all your energy to get more and more and more extended, if the dog loses his footing, it's liable to be deadly. Hard landing. Hard landing. Exactly. But over and over again with SATS trainers, what I see is exactly what you're bringing to us. You know what it can look like. You know what it can feel like. And then you see some other system and they can be well-intentioned and it could look to a non-discerning, non-observational individual like they're doing the same thing, but they're not. The devil is in the details. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at what these people are reporting and what we know works, one thing, we coach the student. Mm -hmm. They get direct preparation for the conditions they get direct support during the trials secondly we plan the trials and we control the variables to the extent that we can yes and to the extent that we exhaust ourselves while we're still in a controlled environment in other words we take every trigger that we can imagine and we study that with the animals inside the safe enclosed environment mm -hmm. we take it out from there and this is so important because when it comes to dogs and so forth a lot of times the people get into trouble when they go out the door and they start walking and they're going to take even a short walk because you can get pretty far in five minutes. And if your animal gets overwrought, overwhelmed with whatever's going on, mm -hmm. what do you do? Where can he go? How can he retreat? We really need to find ways to 
help the animals to feel safe and protected as they keep claiming more and more territory. Yeah. The idea that we don't do this for people is a little bit hard to understand. We don't do it for kids either, do we? No. Uh, details like being able to, whether or not you have a child that is nervous or a dog that is nervous, and you have to walk past something, put the person, the handler, the teacher, the parent between the scary thing and yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, and how fast do you move past it? Um, you don't necessarily want to go really, really slow and drag it out. Going faster can be a little bit easier, but if you bolt, that can be too scary too. That can get that, the adrenaline. That takes knowledge of the person. Yeah. And same thing for dogs. You know, some dogs, it would be a relief for them to go quickly past it, like a sighthound. And then other animals might feel like they're getting pulled over their heads. Yeah. Beyond their depth. So being able to read the feedback with it. One of the worst cases of overload that I've ever seen examples of was a documentary sometime back, uh, some years back, on various cell dog programs. A very well intelligent in, intended group of people. They had at least 30, maybe closer to 40 dogs they, coming from shelters. People have gone through, they try and do some basic testing with them. So whatever situation they'd been in, first of all, they'd been in the original situation, came into a shelter, they vetted him, they bathed him, whatever, put them in with foster homes until they got all of the dogs ready. <clears throat> then they packed these dogs up, gave them, took them in back into the vets, gave them shots, warmed them, bathed them, gave them flea and tick stuff, and packed them four, six deep in vans, loaded them all up, taken the prison at once. They had two prisoners in one cell for each dog. They paraded all the dogs in at once, like hook them up with them. And then all day long, they're doing things like trying to take them to uh, the cafeteria with them, take them all over. The dogs were shutting down. Yeah. And the guys were trying really hard. Oh, we want the dog to be happy, happy, happy. The dogs are huddled in the bed. They're huddled in the crates. They're trying to shut down. And nobody was saying they just need a break. This is overload. You know, imagine you got like a two-year-old kid and they're in this racket. They're nervous. They don't know anyone. So they overloaded him. The one dog that didn't shut down was an Australian cattle dog. Tough yeah. as nails. The guys are out there playing fetch with it all day long. That was the one dog that they flunked out of the program because a few days later going through the crowd, other people, he was minding his own manners, but somebody passing by decided that they were going to try to reach out and pat him on the head. And he started to pull back. And when they still kept reaching for him, he just air snapped, didn't touch anybody, didn't bolt anything out. And it, they bumped him out of him. He would have been a great dog for somebody who was very, very active because yeah, he could handle yeah. anything they threw at him and simply said, back off. Okay, so let's pick this up again. 
like how to set dogs up for success and how to set people up for success when it comes to variables. Mm-hmm. But I would like to get your input on a very specific thing. I was advising people on their puppies. And I I recommended that they quarantine their puppy for a full 30 days after getting them home. No visits to go see everybody. No taking them to puppy class. No taking them to the dog park. Not even taking them on walks. Yeah, like out in the backyard or quiet alley or something like that. But no environmental challenge. The reason is because an animal that goes through a change like that cannot manage their own homeostasis for at least 30 days. They cannot maintain their blood gases for at Mm. least 30 days. So they don't need any other stresses. Oh my, I stirred up a hornet's nest. Not not really. They were nice about it, but I, it was pointed out that everybody recommends otherwise. And I said, everybody who's recommending otherwise does not have my training and experience in, you know, medical uh, physiology. They don't. And the testing that was done on the, the, the various different lab work that you could do with the animals you were working with at the National Zoo and other things, you could get the physiological things with it. Animals will hide stuff. Right. You can't watch them and tell how they're doing. That's so true. It's, it's a matter of life and death for animals to be able to mask their symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that's horrible because a lot of times you don't know there's a problem until it's too late. Mm-hmm. And another thing that people don't understand is the role of quarantine is not to weed out the animals that somebody sent you that were sick. It is to prevent the wonderful animals that somebody sent you from getting sick. Because mm-hmm. all of us are already sick, as it were. We're all carrying what they call subclinical infections. Mm -hmm. So when I worked with a capuchin monkey project, teaching them to be AIDS for quadriplegics, they automatically monitored the monkeys and us for zoonotic diseases. So my monkey came back positive for rheovirus type 2. I was very alarmed. I looked it up. And it was a fatal, a potentially fatal virus, but it could manifest on a whole spectrum of seriousness. And a lot of people, if they showed symptoms of rheovirus type 2, it was just diabetes, but it could Mm -hmm. kill you. The The thing is... 80% of adults in America are carrying it, have no idea. The monkey got the real virus type two from the people she worked with. We didn't get it. And and the stress wound up uh, impairing her immune system 
enough that she got sick. Yeah, well, she didn't even get a clinical infection. She was just caring. Uh, just to, but, but had but, she been more stressed. Yeah, if if you went and shipped her to someplace else, she needs at least 30 days for her body to adjust to mm. the move, the grief, the changes in food and water before you put other stresses on. So mm -hmm. what I would love for you to comment on is you've had a lot of experience training dogs and rearing puppies. The comment that I got was that I was suggesting that they ignore these critical learning windows, that four weeks was too much time to keep a puppy out of circulation. What do you think? And it's okay if you don't agree with me. Well, we got around a lot of that by not letting our puppies go until they were four months old. Mm. That way I knew that the shots were gonna be taken care of but we were also exposing them to a lot of different dogs. The adult dogs would teach them how to mind their manners. They were exposed to cats. They were exposed to goats, sheep, horses, chickens, you know, the wildlife that was around. They uh, were you know, hearing various different things. We would take them certain places. So it would be things like they were getting out with their kin group, with their own social group. They were out there with us. We would have other older dogs around. So it's not, if something spooked them and we took them into town, we were just sitting in the car. They'd look at us. They'd look at the other dogs. And the other dogs would be going, hey, hey this is pretty cool. Or, eh, this is nothing. So they had examples to be able to look at. So they were getting a lot of sensory stimulation. They were learning manners from us. They were learning not to jump on us, to start to pull their bite, things like being able to teach them to pull their bite, Puppy comes up, they want to grab your hand, put your hand up here. It's kind of like with a horse. They're, yeah. They're yeah. going like this, and, it, and it's coming off. They come up to jump on you. They start to jump up. You twist your leg, and they slide off. And usually the other older dogs would be saying, don't you be doing that. And they'd start to grouch at the puppies, and the puppy, they weren't letting the puppies jump on them. So, so you just they, very efficiently, very smoothly – did the early training and the early socialization of all these puppies in a very learning enriched environment. And it was also something that had the exposure to the various different organisms around them. And, you know, I mean, they were out there eating horse poop and other things. So they were picking up some of the probiotics and other things that could be going on. So they were also physically getting exposed to things, but they weren't getting exposed to stray dogs that were unvaccinated. Yeah, so they're so, getting but, exposed to all this stuff before their whole world has changed. Yes, before they're shipped out somewhere. Now, I had two of your dogs, and I have never had dogs that were better trained, nicer, easier. I mean, those dogs were just a total pleasure to be with. We wanted to train dogs to be that way, to be easy to live with. I mean, if somebody wanted to, say, get a you know top ring sport dog or Schutz syndrome or something like that, that isn't what we did. We wanted protection Dobermans to be family dogs, that you could live with them. You, 
easy to travel with, easy to live with, fun to be with. And that was what we wanted to work on and then be able to have dogs that could back you up in a fight if they needed to and have the discernment of when to be able to sense if somebody being good or somebody being bad. But by getting that groundwork in, we didn't have to worry about were the dogs going to be fully vaccinated for parvo by the time they went out the door. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we knew that they had been wormed regularly. We knew what they had gotten with that. We knew that they had, uh, they'd been started on potty training pretty much by the time uh, they would all be reliably crate trained. So they didn't, it weren't peeing and pooping. We had been putting them in crates so that they were used to being in crates individually uh, on with it and not, not, you know, having a panic attack when we'd leave uh, or if they got put in a kennel crate. You know, so we did, did all of that when it wasn't a big stress for them. That that really makes so much sense. And I never even thought about that before, because in addition to the dogs that I knew and you guys and the dogs that I had, I knew a lot of the owners of your puppies and we. Mm -hmm all had the same smooth experience so you know where does this whole idea that you need to take them at seven weeks really come from where is the validation for that okay remind me on that at some point and i will look up in steve Lindsay's um books at some point, I don't remember where that seven-week fallacy came from. I think uh, Lindsay mentions it in there, that that's the idea that that is the perfect imprint time. Um, and pretty much a whole lot of working dog breeders or obedience breeders, uh, trainers and owners and stuff, they're going to be saying the same thing. You got to get them like seven, eight weeks of age, blah, 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 blah. You got to take them out. You got to do this, that, and the other thing with them. Um and I, you know, then I've seen other things where people with, uh, when I was with John with his um, American Bulldogs, he'd pretty much just leave them in, um, in the dog yard. Um, bulldogs actually do do better on a chain than they do in a kennel run. It's the space thing. Well, they get to go around in a circle. All of the other dogs are further away rather than being shoulder to shoulder where it's going to make them cranky with each other. But one of the ways that he would sort of temperament test his dogs was you don't do anything much with them until they're like a year old. Then you kind of take them out maybe with another dog and go hang someplace, see what they're doing with it. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be the way that he was working with um, a, dogs that they were hoping to be able to sell um, maybe for uh, police work. Yeah. They had a very different type of thing with it. Um, but when he was at Topps Kennel, it was also a lot of times dogs that they were had bred and raised themselves. So, again, they had some control over things. They could control what was going on with it, what it was being exposed to. And they did have a graduated program with it. There's been some debate with how much you really need this really, really early training. And then at other times, you know, if, you, if somebody would be, say, working bird dogs, do you have to do all of this stuff with the really early things with being able to have a fishing pole with a lure on it and, and have the dogs trying to point towards it versus taking a dog that's from good working lines, take it out at a year and the instincts just kick in. 
Yeah. I mean, if you get people who are raising cutting horses, they're not out there with a six month old colt turning it loose in a herd of cows and letting it run around and chase cows. Yeah. Well, we don't do that with children either. We put them in daycare and then we put them in kindergarten and then we put them in, you know, we don't let them run around with nuclear reactors. Right. So okay. it's, there's um, different right. things. We would play with working with the protection aspects of it. We would play some tug and stuff with the puppies, but we weren't doing a whole lot of the stuff that a lot of people were doing with, um, I trying to make sure that, you know, they were making them ball crazy or that they were doing a lot of stuff with making them um, want to um, uh, play fetch or doing a whole lot of stuff with really trying to imprint them with a whole lot of stuff. We kind of preferred to want to let them grow up. Again, we'd be playing some tug and other things and roughhousing with them and teaching them, you know, when it was okay to kind of get mouthy with us on the arms, but back off. Um, and get the obedience portion of it more solid, get them out in public so they had a chance to be around people. And then we would start doing more of the protection work when they were a year, sometimes older. It would get to a point where suddenly some of the instincts would start to kick in. And that's when we would start to say, okay, now we're going to teach you. And sometimes it's okay to bite people. Yeah. And the most important thing is when not to bite people and to stop when you're told. Yes. And so it was, yeah, so what we were doing, uh, but again, we weren't going for trial and we weren't going for cop dogs. Yeah. And, and another thing that is really critical here is you were excellent breeders, but you were also excellent trainers. And so combining those two aspects of experience with dogs it was a much better thing uh, for you to train, to do the early training because you could expose them to so many things without major moves or traumas. You're proficient at doing it. You were efficient at doing it. Just like you were talking about just moving to deflect the dog. It's no big deal. And it all gets fixed. Mm -hmm. Whereas each owner is a total unknown. And mm -hmm. even if they're proficient with one level of dog, that doesn't mean that they're going to understand and recognize what a puppy is presenting. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I saw that really horrified me is some guy was showing puppies walking around on ladders laid horizontally like seven eight feet maybe more up in the air and these little puppies maybe three months old or something were just fearlessly clambering over these ladders because they're just at that stage in life where you follow your person or your mother. And I'm thinking, this isn't training. These puppies have no idea of the risks involved. They don't know how to mitigate those risks. What do you do, dog, if you start to slip through the rungs in the ladder? Is that your culling program? You just fall to your death? 
And so uh, then later on, I would read in various places where people that followed that kind of thing where, you know, they thought that having a puppy follow them around at a very young age was the equivalent of training them. And then all of a sudden the puppy doesn't do any of those things. And the puppy enters the fear zone and you see how not trained the puppy mm -hmm. was to go over a horizontal ladder. Mm -hmm. It's like, gosh, you know, who's doing this? How did these people not understand that well, this and some of the things with um, the way wolves and wild canines would raise their cubs. They've got a certain instinct to stay close to the den. You know, mom and pop go away, you stay close to the den for a while. Then as they get older, they'll start exploring more, but they don't go out and start learning to hunt at seven weeks of age. And uh, John Burchard, who had the Salukis, was yeah, saying that when, when they were raising their Salukis, uh, at times, um, and the way that the Desert Bedouin would be raising them was he didn't really mess with them. Eventually, mom, when they were, I want to say maybe six, seven months old, would start getting really rough with them and roughhousing with them and teaching them by grabbing them by the leg or grabbing them by the neck or various different things. It would pretty much be almost like mom and pop were teaching them some of the hunting moves. But the better one pretty much weren't taking these dogs out and having them start hunting with them until they were, I, I think, like close to a year in age. So they, they were them, skeletally ready for that kind of For that type of intense sight hound hunting, that was exactly it. It was pretty much that it was almost like mom knew when they were old enough to start taking out hunting. And it was when they were going to be physically and mentally more capable of it. But if they had tried to take these pups out and start lure coursing with them when they were, you know, eight weeks age, you know, three months old or whatever, they'd be busting down their skeleton. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this would be a neat place to segue to genetics. Did you mm -hmm. want to stay on the other subjects or do, or do you want to? We can get into genetics too. It's, you know, genetics is sort of the blueprint, but then you have the epigenetics, which is sort of like the option switches. Yeah, like what gets read. You've got the encyclopedia here, but that doesn't mean you've memorized the entire encyclopedia and can, you know, recite it. And it's the same thing with genes. You've got this entire collection of genes and you know something, and I don't even have any idea what happens with this, but they are finding, quote unquote, junk DNA in uh, like the um, original cells that are split, you know, to make the embryo. So mm -hmm. a lot of times the parents will give them DNA and it'll be the two half sets but there'll be additional strands of DNA just floating around in there. Okay. And it isn't known how the dogs can access or how anybody can access or whether they can. You know, is there a mechanism for reading that? And if so, 
How does that get turned off and on? And there are so many conditions like Huntington's disease, porphyria. I mean, the list goes on and on where you don't even know you have a genetic problem. And then all of a sudden you get ill. Mm -hmm. So the reason thinking of John Burchard uh, reminded me of this is I was so impressed by the way the Bedouin people managed the genetics of the horses and the dogs. Mm -hmm. This was not a casual decision made by an individual that owned dogs. Yeah. It's like here you have these people and, and the desert can't support huge populations in any place. So they had a situation very much like keeping uh, exotic animals in managed care where you had to manage the genetics across the entire population. Mm -hmm. And it was a considered, a carefully considered process where everybody came together and everybody discussed the possible uh, matings. Yes. They all knew the dogs. They had hunted with them. And usually they didn't breed a lot of these dogs until they were six or seven years old. So they had performance behind each dog also. They wanted to know, are they going to be any good? And will they hold up? And then some of these dogs are still hunting at 16, 17 years old. Wow. And then did they cull? Generally not. Um, it was, they also didn't breed very often. Yeah. Uh, and when they did breed, they'd be passing out the puppies to family members, friends, so that they could keep tabs on it, keep um, uh, keep tabs, keep process on it. Um, how what was the dog good for? Was it good for running hair in um, uh, over the open grounds? Um, was it better at doing something like gazelles? How did it do in rocky terrain or in brush? Uh, so they had a lot of different types of qualifications on it. Yeah. And oh, did you know, this dog's lineage? match pretty well with the other dog's lineage because they could recite pedigrees for multiple generations, both the dogs and the horses. So they had all of this performance data that everybody would chime in on, uh, but they would pass out the puppies. It was pretty much against their culture not to kill unless you were gonna eat it. Um, so they would not cull, so they'd pass them around, see if they were any good, and they may not breed any of them out of that litter if they thought yeah. they all stunk. Uh, but they would, you know, just kind of let the dogs hang around then and, and live out their lifespan. But they usually did not want to cull puppies. And they didn't want to cull dogs other than the fact that they would simply not breed them. And I think, again, in the exotic field, we understand from hard experience why that's a good policy because you don't know what you have so for example at national zoo they had a male golden lion tamarind which were very endangered and he was an excellent sire and i think this was in the 60s or early 70s and he had fathered at least 124 the offspring and it looked great 
until his daughters were near-term delivery of their own babies. And it turns out that he had a lethal dominant mutation for hiatal hiatal hernia. Yeah. And so as their pregnancy came near turn, it would push pieces of gut through the diaphragm and they would get strangulated and the mother Mm -hmm. and the babies would all die. Now, that was, it took a long time for them to know that that was a problem. And then they'd already spread the genes of this very successful sire throughout the world. So, okay. So now you have popular sire syndrome. Tell us more. Okay. So with the popular sire syndrome in quarter horses, it was impressive. Hey, that was the stallion. That was the stallion that wound up having um, a, a gene for. Uh, it was something that was winding up causing muscle tremors, which would make the muscle out really good. But when they got stressed, and particularly if it was reinforced, they could be having young horses that would basically wind up uh, collapsing and dying at a show because of, of bouts of diarrhea. They would they would just be collapsing with it. Huh, so that they sounds like malignant hyperthermia. But anyway, go ahead. Whatever it was, I don't recall just exactly what the gene was, but it was traced back to this stallion. He had become this popular sire. Uh, and, and then particularly when they started you know, doing some line breeding down the line and um, reinforcing it on each side. So it, they were coming up with um, young horses that would be dropping dead at war shows. Uh, and it got to the point, I think the quarter horse industry at one point went on the genetic test for saying it's like, okay, we'll register them and you could breed it to like a non-carrier. And then I think they realized that it was still giving a problem. Uh, and I think at one point they had talked about completely banning anything carrying that gene wow. and basically had to wipe it out. Uh, and then the other one in dogs was going back to splash the Springer Spaniel and the uh, epilepsy type things that we, he was having that was giving him the problems with the aggression. And he's the only dog in that litter that wasn't put, that lived out his natural lifespan due to his owners being uh, very diligent with keeping him on the diet change and the uh, changing his lifestyle. He's the only one that wasn't put down either for aggression or seizures. Okay. But it so went back to this popular sire who was carrying a gene that was giving seizures and leading to Springer Rage Syndrome. So just so they little, turned it back to him. So a little side trip there. Um, here's a deleterious gene, a harmful gene that's being fully expressed. And still, it can sometimes be modified and mitigated, softened by, I I don't know. Yeah, environment. I was going to say, I don't know if we could call this epigenetics uh, because it didn't necessarily change the gene or change how the gene was read, but it changed how the gene was expressed. And... 
And it was, yeah, it was mitigating the factors that would make it worse. So it was the whole management that they had with them, changing the training schedule, uh, changing the diet, adding the 5-HTP to keep him calm. But being able to change his whole environment, he couldn't play fetch with the other dogs. That yeah. would get him wired up. But they could take him out and hunt quail all day, and he'd zone out. And he couldn't compete this with This was also an early perception modification doc. Yes. So yes. going at it from, you know, many different aspects, all strategically formulated to help this dog thrive. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not enough to have the genes or anything else. Now, with these popular sires, Two questions come up. Is the female just not so important? Well, it's not even so much necessarily that. It's that it's just a whole lot easier to be able to send sperm worldwide or, you know, breed a male to a whole lot of females. Unless they start getting into something where they're harvesting eggs um, the way that they've been doing with, uh, I'm not sure if the thoroughbreds are allowing that, but I think some other breeds of horses are doing it and they're doing it with, uh, say some cows, you get a top cow and, um, they'll harvest eggs and transplant embryos. Oh, for goodness sakes. That makes so sense. It has, yeah. It has more to do with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely the female will make a difference. Um, one of the reasons that they were getting into some stuff with doing some line breeding is that if you, there was a popular line breeding where if you bred a female to her, let's see, I think it was maternal grandfather, you would basically be getting to the point where um, you had a very good chance of getting closer to what that male, same you had a male you thought was really great. Uh, if you bred his maternal granddaughter, you know, related to him on, on that side, she would be carrying the X chromosomes, likely more likely to be able to get the X chromosome that he was carrying, hmm. so that you'd be more likely to be trying to get something closer to him. Uh, so but that's the kind of thing that you can't get away with for too long. You start getting into losing too many genes. Yeah. Uh, and some of the genes you're going to be losing that are critical are ones for the immune system and for metabolizing and excreting toxins, the enzymes that right, you're needing. Right, right. So you won't losing too many, too many genes. Do you know any markers for those traits? Okay, so we know that blonde and redhead are dilution factors, so you're going to have more uh, immune problems with if people choose those color codes. If people choose blue dogs or gray dogs, however you want to call it. In Dobermans, what you wind up with the blues and the fawns is a lot of times they'll wind up losing their hair. They may have partial hair loss. Some of them will go basically completely bald. Wow. Uh, And that's different than the white Dobermans. That's an actual very specific gene mutation 
I think they were getting to the point where they were calling it Z Factor. Uh, and it's um, sort of a semi-albino. It can be various different shades with it. A lot of them are flaky. And I don't know if they're flaky necessarily because of the Z factor itself or the fact that a lot of times they've been inbred because some people thought it was cool. Well, that's the white tigers, right? So yeah. some Maharishi in India gifted white tigers to the National Zoo. So they bred them and bred them and all of a sudden decided they were not going to breed anymore because these tigers had, first of all, the dilution factor. Their stripes were chocolate brown. Their eyes were blue. Their heads were narrower. They uh, were much more susceptible to stress and conditions of stress. They were much more likely to get upset by things and to have accidents and illnesses. And finally, they just said, there's a reason this is rare in nature. And so they quit going for that. Then you have individuals. Uh, I remember Siegfried and Roy, you know, all respect to them. They um, obviously love their animals, but because of the showiness, a lot of these people wanted these white tigers, regardless of the fact that it was not beneficial for the tiger itself. So other places we see this, um, and some of these we don't really have anything to do with it, cowlicks on mm -hmm. cows, uh, brown, mm -hmm. brown coats on Chesapeake Bay Retrievers and Labs. Do you have any experience? No, I've not heard anything whether or not um, there's any good data on that. Years ago, and I'd lost the website, I did remember seeing somebody talking about in horses, different coat colors and some of the ways that it could wind up affecting their uptake of various types of nutrients. Interesting. And that, you know, some of the things that they were saying something about, uh, you know, like I, I think it was like chestnuts and sorrels being a little bit flakier, but then other people were kind of saying, well, can you really say that? Or is it just that there's a lot more chestnuts and sorrels? Right. Um, but now we so know. They we know were that. Getting, yeah, yeah, there can be factors like that. Well, and less so, mile and sheeping. Yes. Red coats. So that the whole term of a hothead is actually has some basis. And I'm actually an honorary hothead because uh, you can't see it unless I bleach my hair. But if I bleach my hair it turns bright orange. And I started out as a redhead. And then redheads need more anesthesia. Yeah. Because of that, uh, because there's less myelin sheathing in it, they need more anesthesia to go into full deep mode. I can't recall what it is, but there's something like if you actually poke somebody with a needle and you get no flinch, it takes more anesthesia to get a redhead into that. And I had that issue. Mm -hmm. Like I impaled my head chasing sheep, another story. But I had to go in and get 40 stitches, if you can believe it, just along here. And um, 
a friend of mine was an OR nurse and she heard it on some kind of, you know, how people listen to that stuff on the radio. So she came to assist this doctor doing the surgery on my head. And she knew me and I was trying to just tough it out. But like 15 minutes in, she said, doctor, she's feeling everything. And they had to give me more. And you know what? Not only did they have to give me more, but I wish they hadn't because I think I could have toughed it out. But on the way home from having the surgery, I had waited for over six hours with this injury and, um, you know, waiting for them and not knowing and no pain relief or anything like that. Afterwards, on the way home, I had such excruciating pain. It was like somebody did a comedy thing on this um, in the 60s about how anesthesia or um, painkillers, they don't get rid of pain. They just delay it and give them time to make little pain buddies. <laughs> and just the car going over little tiny cracks in the road and so forth that normally I wouldn't even notice. I was frantic with pain. And when we got to the university, um, they wanted my ID to get back on campus. And it was overwhelmingly difficult for me to lean over and get my ID out of my bag. And I was crying and angry and just let me out of here. My boy, poor boyfriend was just like, he had no idea. He had no idea what was going on. But I didn't either. But that's how severe the reaction was to the anesthesia. So you got the rebound pain with it. Yeah, I got um, the pain, but also very much like it wasn't just withstanding the pain. It was this intense dysfunction of my ability to cope. You know, because you know me, I'm not a, I'm not a person that cries at every little thing or, you know, I'm pretty good in an emergency, pretty tough. I wasn't. Yeah. And some of the things that they found with long term results of uh, different types of anesthesia and trying to keep anesthesia as light as possible now. Uh, but, yeah, you know, various different things. And that can be genetic, too how your body will process and metabolize and excrete the various different uh, medications, yeah. whether or not it's gas anesthesia, IV, um, an oral pain pill. These are all very different. And now they're starting to find out with uh, that, yes, indeed, blondes and redheads do have a tendency to really react to various types of medications, not excreting them as well. I yeah. have a problem with the high salicylate, ah, okay. uh, aspirin, and also foods. I can't yeah. use a whole lot of various different types of uh, essential oils, um, mint and clove oil, high in salicylates. Mm -hmm. It'll wind up giving me a toxic reaction. Interesting. And all the nightshades, right? You can't do. I, I don't do very well with a whole lot of the nightshades. Uh, so this is similar to... Um, 
uh, being lactose intolerance in that it is low levels of the enzymes needed to excrete them. I possible hypothesis is that uh, in the Northern European diet, when there weren't a whole lot of vegetable foods during the winter, it was a way of conserving good nutrients. But when you're exposed to similar chemicals in a modern diet, and also various different things like aspirin and related chemicals in cleaning products and other things, it can become toxic. Wow. So you kind of like use up your quota of enzyme, and then you have all this stuff and you can't God. You. Yeah. Now here is a very serious one that people haven't started to grapple with and we need to get on it. And Oh, by the way, folks, this is a reason that we need to have marine mammals in managed care. And that is the absence of a specific gene that um, regulates for the production of an enzyme that breaks down organophosphates. So since I wasn't I, expecting to talk, I think it's the HPO1 gene, but I can't swear by that. And, um, but it's the gene that caused marine mammals to have shortened or missing back legs. And it's funny what does have this gene and what doesn't. It's not exactly predictable. But because of the fact that this gene is associated with a failure to be able to detox organophosphates, it is now projected by some scientists that by the turn of the century, all cetaceans, which are whales and dolphins, all sirenia, which are dugongs and manatees, all sea uh, lions, most seals, and a lot of the animals like sea otters and other kinds of otters will all be in risk of being extinct. Because at the same time they have the susceptibility, the oceans are becoming increasingly polluted. I literally just today heard of, I think it was canisters of DDT uh, off of the coast of California. Some company was dumping them there and they're rusting out. Oh. And some of the things where they were coming up with the various different sea mammals with cancers and other types of stuff with it. Sea lion uh, cancer is going way up in the wild. Yeah. And they, so this was... Um, as somebody who'd been diving there for quite a while was coming up with, you know, okay, we've got these rusting barrels of this shit down in the ocean. How do we get it out of there? Yeah. Uh, so finding the ways to be able to clean it up. So there's so many things that are in there. Uh, other things that are going on with um, you know, the possibility that birth control pills being excreted, um, not being broken down in wastewater, yeah. are causing fish and amphibians to become hermaphroditic. Oh, 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 yes. So, you know, being a marine mammal person, I was always hanging out at the aquariums and everything. Did you already know that there's whole species of fish that will either go through a male and a female phase or go back and forth between them? 
I hadn't heard of going back and forth, but I had heard of some starting out one sex and then as they reach a certain age and maybe a certain status within um, whatever, they'll flip and become uh, the opposite sex. Yeah, and, and some of them can go back. So in the Chesapeake Bay alone, the entire lamprey and American eel populations both, if, if like this data is from the 90s, and so it's possible that things have been reassessed or changed or something like that. But all the mm -hmm. females, all the fish were females. And they didn't know if they were going to be extinct or not because of that. Because they didn't know if some of the fish would be able to move back and become male again. And they also didn't know whether or not these fish were capable of parthenogenesis, as we see with reptiles. Okay. So theoretically, if a reptile could, so if you don't know what parthenogenesis is, it's the ability to kind of clone yourself, to mm -hmm. produce, to gestate your own eggs without fertilization from another individual. And you're going to produce all female babies and they will have all the, essentially the same genes. Although, you know, there's always possibility that something could misdivide. You could get some extra this or that or missing something. But basically, these would all be copies of the mother. So they're missing that incredibly important biodiversity that the male gives to his offspring. Mm -hmm. so, Isn't there a Komodo dragon yeah, that Komodo came up with Komodo dragons can do this, and I forget who else. I, I think it might be bearded lizards, but anyway, there's um, more than one kind of reptile that can do this. Mm -hmm. So can fish do this? We are not the world's experts, or even if we are the world's experts, we do, there's a lot we don't know. Okay. How these so, things uh, play out over time and over different circumstances is a scary story that we are scared to know the end to. So we're messing up with the hormones on so many other ways. Um, another thing getting back into genetic expression, um, just because two cells have the same DNA, they might even be sitting next to each other. They may not have all of the same genes active. That's right. Uh, in particular, one of the things where I had heard where this was expressed was in diet. Um, okay, say somebody is eating a diet that is fairly high in dairy, uh, and they can produce a certain amount of lactase enzymes. Um, their body will start activating enough of the cells that produce that enzyme as it goes further down along to the intestines and there's less of the milk to get there, there's no point in having those genes activated in those cells because there's not that much milk for it to act on. Oh, so even in a single so, individual, you would have it being activated in certain regions of the body and not in others. Right. And then oh, if it goes, if they increase the amount of milk, that they're eating and it's going further down, then the body, it may take a little bit. They may have some gastric upset for a few days. 
uh, but then the body will start activating. It's like it's actually unrolling the sites the, of the DNA, the gene, where it is, and it'll start to activate the production of it. Then if you stop eating that much dairy, it'll get to the point where it's saying, well, we're not going to waste the energy keeping this production site open, and it'll go dormant again. Wow. That's and I, I think that's also going on in various other parts of the, uh, the body with endorphins, uh, the receptors for endorphins. It's uh, the production of the endorphins in a weird cycle. It's receptor driven. You can end up with endorphin depletion syndrome under enough pain or under enough stress. The body will use up the endorphins faster than it can produce them at that time. But in a nasty, vicious cycle, when the receptors aren't getting enough of the endorphins with it, the body will say, well, they're not doing anything. And it'll kind of shut down and mothball some of the receptors. So trying to jumpstart to production, you have to push the body a little bit harder, drop it below so it sort of like triggers the thermostat. And then there'll be a surge that'll bring it up a little bit higher the receptors are starting to wake up. Oh, gosh. So this, this is another whole subject. Regulation, dysregulation, re feedback cycles, like uh, addictions. Okay, we've got to talk again, Julie. Okay. Now, before we leave tonight, because if you can believe it, we've been on for over an hour. It seems <laughs> like a few minutes. But we started out talking about perception modification. And then we talked about genetics. And now we're talking about the reading of genetics and the management of genetics. And I would like to say something about perception modification before we end. But I would like to ask you, if you were advising the zoos of the world, for example, in how to manage the genetics of these animals where we may not have 600 diverse individuals. And you know that you're going to have some animals like this um, uh, golden lion tamarind that had a lethal gene. So that one is pretty much you can't let him breathe. But there are a lot of non-lethal variations that may not be optimal. Do you have a way to decide when you remove something from the gene pool? That's something that came up on some of the dog breeding discussion groups years ago. And one of... Um, the things that came up was, well, first of all, I, I'd probably be saying do everything you can to put sperm and eggs of every critter that you can. Put them in cold storage. Put them on ice. Save the genes. Because even though, uh, now one of the other things on that tamarind would be to find out, did that happen every single time? Yeah. Did every one of his daughters have that or were there possibly some modifiers? Did any of his siblings have that? Yeah. Did any of the siblings produce it? Because it could be possible that they gave an example with 
dogs, you may have some dog that was prone to having um, congenital blindness and heart issues, but maybe that's one that's got a gene that's resistant to parvo. Right. So we have to look at it with the idea really of population genetics and being able to keep all the options open. Maybe that one's a piece of crap for a whole lot of other things, but there's so many things that might be going on with it. Well, uh, and remember with the potbelly pigs, there was some judge and, oh gosh, I, I you know had to be try to be social about it because a lot of the people just weren't informed and they thought it was okay to just decide how a pig should look. But this pig, I mean, this pig, this judge made it known that she would not place any pigs that had a long snout. So the breed standard said it could be a short snout or a long snout. Well, I believe that that's the problem with the breed standards. It should be a long snout, period. Because mm. the pig tur nasal turbinates are so complex that when you foreshorten them, they are much more prone to rhinotracheitis and other infections and inflammations and problems that are going to make that pig's life more miserable. So this one individual who had no justification except for ego, they wanted to exert their influence to control the way pigs looked. Mm -hmm. And they ushered in misery. And it's similar with these brachiocephalic breeds. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I, I love, I love purebred dogs and I love dog breeders, but it's like, wow, we have to take a responsible look at what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And to find out, you know, some of the breed clubs are really trying to do it right. Um, the last I'd heard the border collie registry, did not really have any sort of a breed standard as far as, you know, the way it was supposed to look. They didn't have a confirmation standard. Um, and when the AKC accepted Border Collies into it, I think they put in regulation that any dog that got an AKC championship was immediately thrown out of the stud book. Because the first two factors <laughs> that we're going to get. Because it, having the two, two critical things to be able to herd like a Border Collie is they have to have the crouch and they have to have the eye. And those are just too freaky looking to have trotting around an AKC uh, show ring. It's just too freaky. But they were saying that you could take dogs that had probably for five generations done nothing more than play Frisbee really well. And you could still have a really good chance of taking it over there and giving it some herding trading. And you might have a very qualified herding dog. It was possible to be able to take some dog that you found at a shelter. You had no idea what its genetics were. It might kind of look like a border collie. It might look maybe sort of like, you know, part of border collie. Uh, but if you took it and trained it and it turned out to be a top-notch, you know, just world-class herding dog, it could go on to be accepted into the breed registry and go on to possibly becoming a popular sire. Yeah, because like they were basically on performance. And, uh, and board, 
border collies actually tend not to do very well with getting x-rayed for hip dysplasia. Their hips tend to be a little bit slack, but they almost never have degenerative joint problems. Hmm. And there are a whole lot of the stuff that started going on with people trying to x-ray their dogs and we're going to get rid of hip problems and yada, yada, yada. And a lot of times they're finding out, gee, it's not really so much the shape of the socket, but it's got much more to do with some of the connective tissue and the socket is shaped as it grows. Wow. Well, you know, this is what dancers say. They say the muscles are the framework for the bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and skull shape, uh, Lindsay got into it in um, some of his books. Dog's skull shape is based off of pressure from the way the brain is growing on the inside. Oh, interesting. So it's like the skull, it's not like the skull is being shaped. It's pretty much the rate that it's growing. The, the skull is still soft because if the brain grows more, then yeah. it needs to give to accommodate yeah. the brain size, which right. King Cavalier Spaniels can be a problem, right? Yeah. They have a tendency to wind up, uh, uh, what is it, uh, skull plates, I think, fuse too soon. That can happen in other breeds, but it's really much more common in the Cavaliers. Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Well, to take us full circle back to perception modification, just as with the case with um, Splash and many other animals, there are many times that I see dogs that their entire fate rests on some kind of text. Mm -hmm. You know, like if they're in a shelter and they put the excessa hand in and if the dog does something to that excessa hand, then he's out. And I understand, I totally understand the rationale. They've got mm -hmm. too many dogs. They can't save them all. And so they're going to save the most of the easy to place safe ones that they can. But it's so easy to help a dog past those kinds of problems, usually using perception modification. When I say easy, I'm talking about a lot of times it's just a matter of explaining things to the dogs. I remember a case that I took because another friend uh, was ill and the owners were very concerned as they should be with this dog resource guarding. And the dog was at my feet chewing on a bone or something. And so I was explaining how important it was to tell the dog what you were going to do. So I said, for example, your dog is at my feet chewing on a bone. So before I go and mess with her bone, I'm going to tell her what I'm going to do, ask her permission, and I'm going to bridge her. So I, and I also, of course, I'm going to tell her that I'm changing levels. So I don't remember her name, but it's like, okay, girl, I'm going to change levels. I'm going to pick up your bone. You ready? Good, 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 bone. Good, 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 good. That's really good. And I look up to continue speaking to the owners and they're like, and I said, is this a problem for her? And they go, yeah, like nobody can do that. But I didn't even see a problem because 
the way I'm approaching the dog is calculated to not cause a problem. Mm -hmm. So if people could learn to interact differently, it's like, I think you quoted this earlier too. Don't mess with them while they're eating in general. Mm -hmm. Now, if they're not safe, put them in their crate when they're going to chew on something. Mm -hmm. Explain what you're going to do. Don't do things that put the dog into a state of uncertainty without explaining yourself. And that means changing levels, picking up their food, uh, looking at their body intensely, like you might have to dissect them on the spot. These are all things that dogs can find a little worrisome. And there's, there's no way that I would have been able to take my Connie Corso Layla and turn her into a type of dog that was going to, that you were going to take into a hospital and have them entertain patients. Yeah. Um, She didn't hate people. um, Didn't hate them at all, but her breed was meant to be put behind a wall in a courtyard. Connie Corso means courtyard dog. Mm, Put them behind a wall at night and nobody's going to come through that wall. They were basically strangers who are supposed to be guilty until proven innocent. We'd go for a walk. People would be minding their own business. She was just happily sniffing, looking at everything along the way. But if anybody would start to try to stop, and if they want to stop and chat, that was fine. As long as they weren't staring at her or me too much or getting too close, and particularly if anybody would try to reach. You know, you don't right. try to reach them. And even then, it wasn't like she would be just out there trying to eat them. Um, It was like she would come forward and jump and bark and grouch and basically say, back off, which, you know, the few times it happens, like everybody did. And then she'd keep an eye on them. But once they got, you know, pretty much like eight, 10 feet away or whatever, she'd go back to ignoring them again. Didn't hate them. Didn't hold a grudge. She was just very clear on you don't do this. For me to introduce her to somebody new, we'd go for a walk. She'd be on the other side. Um, and But as long as we were kind of moving and I'm chatting, she's kind of going, okay, mom thinks it's okay. So, And she'd kind of keep an eye on people for a while. And then if I really wanted to introduce her with it, it's like, okay, well, you know, here, you take the leash and walk for a little bit and, you know, let her go sniff over on that side and whatever. And then usually by the time we get to the spot, point where we could stop and sit down, she'd go over and kind of sniff at them and maybe they could get a pat or two, but she really didn't warm up until until she'd seen them several times. Yeah. That, but so it was, there was no way that I was ever going to get her to the point where she was going to think people were nice immediately. That yeah. was her job description. I didn't want to change it. She wasn't lassie. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't looking yeah. for lassie. You didn't get lassie. Wasn't looking for Lassie, but you know, it was the kind of thing where you know, didn't care where I was going to be walking around. I knew if somebody was going to try and mug me, they would have to go through her first. Yeah. Stop a 110 pound dog. Well, so it's you know, don't try to force them into it, and also don't try to force a soft dog into being a guard otherwise. dog. Otherwise, yeah, but yeah, yeah getting touching back to the training thing again. I remember a professional trainer in Netherlands who came with his 
it was a canicorso cross, but in any case, some kind of molosser crossbow. And we had a great co-organizer who was an ex-professional football player. Real mm -hmm. tall, real big, very nice, very, you know, outgoing. And this dog, this canicorso was too dangerous to be in the seminar. So they had some holding area down below and they put him down there. And after the seminar, we went down to do some work with him. Literally, truly only like less than half an hour total, maybe more like 20 minutes total. Anyway, um, he already was upset with this big, nice man because the guy had admiringly stared at him and said hi and this dog was very sensitized to attention so we went down there and did this little protocol that i call looking at me or no i'm looking at you that's what it is looking at you and by the time we start out with just me looking at the dog for an instant to all eight of us jumping up and down going looking at you as we jump toward this dog and the dog just calmly taking the whole thing in stride and then being fine with the football player. And then mm. the next morning we got a phone call in the middle of the morning from the trainer's uh, wife or girlfriend. And she said, what did you do with my dog? Mm -hmm. And he had set the phone up to be, um, on you know where everybody can hear it on speakerphone and you know me i'm pretty much what you see is what you get and that's fine with me and i said what happened with your dog and she goes well for the first time in my entire life the dog actually walked with me he carried a ball for me he didn't growl at anybody he didn't growl at the guy outside the apartment last night that he's been growling at his entire life Mm -hmm. what changed my dog whoa what changed your dog is that somebody gave him an owner's manual you mm -hmm. know you, you own humans and they are crazy they do these things and it may not mean what you worry it means mm -hmm. they look at you it doesn't mean they're sizing you up to hurt you it yeah. may mean that they are, that's just what they do. And it's like, I guess this dog just went, oh, thank God. Because if yeah. it was another can of Corso, it would have been a tough life ahead. Yeah. Now, and with Layla, she, she was only, it, there were certain people who were sketchy looking that she'd start being leery of. I always agreed with her. And for the most part, though, if, you know, if, if but most people just going by and stuff, like I said, if they just kind of casually looked and, you know, walking by or, you know, you know, people go by on bikes and other kids and roller skates and stuff like that. That was no problem when she got used to it. But it was when people would start to doing that rude stare where yeah. they're looking at a dog like they're an object. And she's just kind of going, nah, I don't like that and back off. Yeah, like you should know better than this. Yeah, you know, just quit being rude. So, 
So folks, uh, there's, there's a lot we can do. There's a lot we can do with genetics. There's a lot we can do better with genetics. There's a lot we can do managing diet, exercise, food, mm -hmm. supplements, carb versus protein levels. Um, we'll talk about these things more. Julie, mm -hmm. I love it when you come on the podcast. I want to oh, I would love being here. And we've been talking for hours ever since the first time we talked. That's right. And it's always, we never get over it, do we? <laughs> no. So we're going to do it again, folks. So come back and please tell your friends about this because we would love to talk to more of you. We'd love more people to think about these ideas and facts and put them to use for your benefit and for the benefit of the dogs that you love and the other animals that you love. And so thank you all for coming to be with us. Please share with your friends. Um, comments, love those comments. Please see if you can leave us any. You take care and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Casey. Take care, everybody. Hey, fans. Are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Covert. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.